Okay. Everybody could grab a seat. Our pastor has been away in India for the last two Sundays. I know it's been a while since you guys have heard from him, so I know you're anxious. Here's the man. Oh, first the scripture. <laughs> the scripture reading today is taken from John 10, 11 through 18. <clears throat> I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason for my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Vanessa. Hello, it's good to be back, because uh, I think most of you know I was uh, in India the last uh, three Sundays. Uh, spent a week with my dad, and then went to northern India, and then southern India, to some uh, a seminary, a college, and a little church in a tiny little village in the south of India. Um, what is it like to go to India? Sunny Gupta told me that it's crazy extremes. It's beautif- beautiful. It's ugly. Trash, dirt everywhere. Wealth and poverty side by side. Um, you love it. You hate it. You want it to leave. You immediately want to go back. That is all true. One little story to give you a sense of India. India is the most chaotic country I've ever been to. And the roads are unbelievably chaotic. And um, rather recklessly, I rented a motorbike my last week there. (laughs) So there are no markings on the road in India. Single lane, no pavement on the side, or no sidewalk. It just shades off into dirt. Holy cows sometimes suckling their calves in the middle of the road, dogs everywhere, children, um, stalls. So it was my second day. I tried to be very careful and stay away from everything, and I was coming up to a little roundabout, and the road was completely packed. On the sides were the animals, the cows and the dogs and the goats and the stalls. Then there were the children playing in the dirt on the side of the road, and then there were children walking to school on both sides, then there were the motorbikes, and then there were cars, and then there were the trucks, all coming together at this one junction. And it was just solid. And I wanted to slow down, and then I heard a beep behind me, and it was a truck trying to overtake. And it was right behind me, so I couldn't slow down, and I realized I was going to die. And it was just a wall of people, and I'm thinking, this is it. And um, I can't slow down, and this truck is just going to drive me right into everything. At that moment, there's another beep. Indians will tell you, 
Indians can drive without gas, they can drive without wheels, but they can't drive without the horn. And you, the horn uh, is how they, it works. So as I'm about to die, in the space that doesn't exist, this woman pulls up alongside. Well, she's, she's going faster than me. She's on a scooter. She's got a child in front of her. The child is in a shiny school uniform standing up in front of her on the scooter. Her son is behind her, holding onto her. He's got a big backpack full of books. And behind him, holding onto the backpack with one hand, is a little girl in, with pigtails and a little school uniform reading a book. And, they, and so now, not only am I going to die, but I'm thinking, how can I kill as few children as possible? And at that very moment, the height of the calamity, the madness, her cell phone rang. And this mother answered the phone. And she hit the horn, and she went through those cows and dogs and children and trucks. And I followed through after her, and that was like a normal day in India. The Sundays I was there, I preached every Sunday, and I preached on this passage. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And of course, the, the idea of, of Jesus as a, as a shepherd, as a great shepherd, as our shepherd, our personal savior, is important for Christians. But over there, it seems more important. Christians are besieged in India. There's a lot of them, but there's 1.3 billion Indians. And so Christians are in a sea of Hinduism and Buddhism. While I was there, uh, a gentleman who was uh, high in the government was being persecuted because he was a Christian and he had preached and the Hindu uh, Nationalist Party was challenging his right to be part of the government. And the idea of being taken care of, of being shepherded, is very real when you're a persecuted minority, when you're in a sea of other people, when your faith is not necessarily recognized. Although I talked at churches, I was not allowed to say that I was preaching because it's illegal for tourists to preach. And yet everywhere I went, I ran into Christians who knew the same shepherd that I knew, who were following the same shepherd, Jesus who worshipped and celebrated his presence in their life. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And when um, Jesus was telling this story, he was describing the one flock that he was creating out of all the Christians in the world. He came to Israel to bring the gospel back to the Jewish people. But he also came to call out of all the tribes and all the peoples and all the nations of the world, his people, to form one flock, the Christian church. And I highly recommend, if you've never done it, go visit a country and worship with other Christians. 
And many of the Christians that I was worshiping with spoke Hindi. But I could recognize the rhythms of the doxology and the Lord's Prayer. I could recognize the rhythms of our service and their service. And to go halfway around the world and to feel that you are part of this one family, this one flock, this one people, is extraordinary. But it also showed me the value, the worth, the significance of our faith, Christianity, and the one we worship. A typical morning for me when I first arrived there, I stayed at a, a Christian college, was to be woken up at 4 o'clock in the morning by braying trumpets and cymbals and bells and frenzied chanting. Because right next to the college I was staying at, there was a Buddhist monastery. And they woke up. They woke up God to celebrate the dawn every morning. And I watched them. My bedroom overlooked the wall, and I could look into the monastery. And it was mainly young boys, teen boys, in their red robes, learning how to be monks. And I didn't really recognize what I was watching until I heard this young girl preaching. Every morning at the Christian college, at 10 o'clock, there was a chapel, and one of the students would be asked to preach and graded on that sermon. The professors would sit at the back with the sermon written out. And one morning, this woman, she got up, she was tiny. She'd been a Buddhist. She was orphaned. She was taken care of by a Christian family who sent her to school. Christians in India are famous, are known for the premium they place on education, especially of education of girls. So she was educated. She recognized the faith of her new parents, and she ended up going to the Christian college. And there she stood up preaching her first sermon. She talked about the great shepherd. Her text was the parable where Jesus talks about the good shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go and find the one that's lost. And as she spoke, it resonated with me because long before I was a Christian, I had heard that story. It's in the Gospel of Luke. I heard it when I was at school in England as a young boy. Now in England... The state requires every school to teach Christianity to all English students. But of course, most of them, most of the teachers are not Christian. And so I remember when the teacher told the parable, and in the parable the shepherd discovers that one sheep is lost, and he leaves the 99, and he goes out to find the lost sheep. My teacher, when telling that story, was outraged by it. It made no sense to her. A teacher who loses a child is probably going to get fired. A teacher that leaves 99 kids to go and find a lost one is probably going to end up in jail. It just did not add up to her. her. Leave 99 to go find one. The math doesn't work. But I remember, this is long before I was a Christian, I remember loving that story. I loved the idea that there was someone who would come find me if I got lost. Who cares about the 99? If I was lost, 
I would want those 99 to be left and the teacher to come find me. And the idea of someone who cared more about me than the 99 was powerful. And of course for this Buddhist woman, now Christian, who had been orphaned and abandoned, she had experienced the one who'd come to find her. And she resonated with the story too. And what was most amazing to listen to her, not just the story, she had an amazing story, but the passion that she now had, the love that she had experienced from the one who'd come to find her, animated her. She was very small, she was a tiny woman, and yet she filled this auditorium. She had experienced the God who comes to find the lost. She had experienced the Good Shepherd who goes out into darkness to find us. One thing that I learned in India is that love and the love that God has for us as Christians is what distinguishes Christianity. Certainly from Buddhism, certainly from Hinduism. Hindus believe, Hinduism is a vast subject, but Hindus believe in three primary gods. Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Brahma, the creator. Vishnu, the sustainer. And Shiva, the destroyer. And they believe that Brahma created the world. Not created, actually. That's exactly the wrong word to use. The Brahma is the world. Brahma's lips are from where the Brahmins, the highest caste of Indians, come. Brahmins' lips are where the cows come from. That's why they're so holy. Brahma's body and belly are where the farmers come from because they produce the food. And the thighs are where the workers come from. And every person in society has a place in the body of Brahma. And so you literally worship each other. You worship the sun and the moon, you worship the trees, you worship the animals, you worship everything, because everything is God. But there's a problem. You are born into this reality. And you have a place in this reality. You have a place in this caste system based on your karma. How well you did in your previous life determines how you live now. And if you don't live well this life, you will drop in the next life in this endless cycle of trying to prove your worth and your value. An endless cycle of trying to live up to this impossible standard so that you might raise your caste in your next incarnation. An endless cycle of trying to get the God's attention. Of braying on horns and cymbals and bells early in the morning so that God would notice your life. The gods would notice your life. Would pay attention to everything you do. Because otherwise they get bored. Otherwise they turn away. Otherwise what you do is meaningless. An endless cycle of trying to raise the standard of your next incarnation. And this woman said, what a relief 
it had been for her, to discover that there was a way off this endless treadmill, this endless cycle, because she had encountered the one who loved her just for who she was. The one that didn't need to be woken up every morning, but that knew her and cherished her and valued her life. The shepherd who came to find her when she was lost. You know, Paul talks about this. In his letter to the Corinthian church, there's a very famous chapter, chapter 13, often read at weddings, all about the idea of love. And while we think oftentimes about weddings and human love, what it really is talking about is the love that God has for us. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Just like those Buddhists at four o'clock in the morning trying to wake up God. You have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. The difference between Christianity and every other faith system, every other belief system, is that we are loved that we are of infinite worth. How does the math add up for a shepherd to leave 99 behind to look for the one? It doesn't make sense for a human shepherd. The only way it makes sense is for an infinite God who can love each individual one of us infinitely, give us infinite value so that one is as valuable as 99. That's the difference. The one who cares about every moment of our life, the one who cares about every prayer, the one who cares about every event, the one who cares about every relationship, every problem, every hardship. There's a place in Isaiah where God speaking through Isaiah says this, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now when God said that, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands, that must have been a mystery to Isaiah. What could God be talking about? What could he be referring to, names engraved on the palms of our hands? Well, we know, because we know Jesus. One of the things that the Indian church prides itself in, on is that it was founded by Thomas, Thomas the Apostle, Doubting Thomas, after seeing the risen Christ, went to India and founded the Christian church there. Now let me read to you the story of Thomas. This is in the Gospel of John. 
Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So this is after Jesus' death and resurrection when he begins to appeal to the disciples. Thomas doesn't, doesn't see that original apparition. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. But the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. And he believed. This, by the way, is the first time that Jesus is referred to as God in the Bible. What did Thomas see? He saw not only the one that he'd been following for three years. Thomas was a disciple. He'd seen Jesus teach. He'd heard his teaching. He'd seen him interact. He'd seen his miracles. He had seen everything that he had done for three years. And yet still he doubted. But as soon as he saw those wounds, he knew. And what did he know? He knew that God's love for him was real. That Jesus was not only the shepherd who goes to find the lost and bring them home, but who pays the price of bringing them home. Who guarantees in his own body that everything that stands between us and God is removed. Who opens his arms to us, has them nailed open so they can never be closed. A perfect welcome. A welcome that lasts forever. And when Thomas saw that, he realized who Jesus was. Now you heard Gary talking about what the children are learning and thinking about right now. Who is Jesus? It's what every one of us faces. Everyone is in this room, every Christian all around the world. Do you see your name engraved on Jesus' hands? Do you see the one who came to find you? The good shepherd who leads you home? The one who loves you infinitely? Who will do whatever it takes to bring you home safe? The one you can trust with everything in your life that's valuable? The one who is your God? That's what we're invited to encounter in Christ. And when we think about him as a shepherd, when we think about ourselves following him, that's what we're following him to. To an infinite, inexhaustible love. A love that will never say no. To a love that overcomes all problems. That forgives everything in us. And puts us exactly where we're meant to be. With our God. I'd like to end by reading you Psalm 23. 
I did this three times in India. And although many times the people spoke a different language, they all recognized this song. They recognized the rhythm of the language. And everyone responded to it. As I read it to you, think about who Jesus is to you. Is he your Lord? Is he your shepherd? Are you following him? Do you trust him to lead you home? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are the good shepherd, the beautiful shepherd, that you have come into our world to find us when we are lost. That you love us infinitely as you prove by going to the cross for each of us. That you know us by name and are calling us to yourself. Lord, give us the courage and the faith to follow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.